Let's turn this morning to Romans chapter 10. I was was visiting a member not long ago, one of those saints in the church, been around a long time, godly for a long time, Uh, I go see people like that, you know, who does the ministry? Do they do it or do I do it? So often I walk away with much more. And this is one of those experiences. Uh, I walked in and she had her Bible ready, as she usually does, and uh, dog-eared and marked and ready to go through a couple passages. And as we began to talk, she began to, she began to preach. Okay, well, that's the way it was. Began to preach about grace. And this wonderful grace, this grace that changes things, this grace that changes someone who is an enemy of God into a child of God, changes someone who is completely devoted to sin and someone who can be completely devoted to Christ, this grace that can deliver us from from the things of this world, this grace that can change this world. And and I, I figured that everybody had to understand that. So we needed, as a church body really to examine the transforming grace of Jesus Christ. And today we begin a series that will take us several weeks on different aspects of this transformational grace. Today we look at how it changes an individual from an enemy of God to a child of God. Let's pray. Lord, come upon us today that we might be enlivened to this grace that our eyes might be open, that our heart would be, would be made alive to this grace that changes us. For those of us who are believers, Lord, that we might remember what we used to be like and what we are today because of Jesus Christ. For those, Lord, who may come not knowing Christ, might their hearts be changed by this grace today in a powerful fashion. Come and open our eyes to your word today, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Just two verses today. Please stay seated today. Chapter 10, verses 9 and 10. That if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. For with the heart man believes, resulting in righteousness. With the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. Transformation is not just reforming, restructuring re-molding, rebuilding, re-re-anything. A transformation is a complete change where the old that used to be here is now completely gone and has been transformed into the new. And that's what this grace does. It has the power to completely change an individual. Completely change an individual. It has the power to completely change the world, which we'll see in a few weeks. We begin this understanding of transformational grace here with salvation. So how do you receive this righteousness of God? How do you come to understand Jesus Christ is Lord? How do you come to know Jesus Christ is Lord? How does that take place in your heart? Now, it should be pretty clear here from Scripture. Confess with your mouth, believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. But uh, 
it's a little fuzzier when you get out in other areas of the church. They don't always understand the importance of these two words, faith and confession. Faith and confession. You can't have real faith without confession. You can't confess Christ as Lord unless you have real faith. Let's look at verse 9 to start with. If you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart. Now, the astute observer will say, well, Rand, isn't that backwards? Can't, don't you have to believe first and then you can confess? Well, look back in verse 8. But what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. Paul is simply carrying on that transition from 8 to 9. And, and, and chapter, in verse 8, he's quoting Deuteronomy 30. Okay? In verse 10, he goes back to the correct order, which is, for with the heart man believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses. Okay, with the heart he believes, with the mouth he confesses. First of all, being made righteous, being saved, starts with a believing heart. Now, believe in your heart, verse 9. Very personal. You can't believe for somebody else. You can't believe for the person next to you and get them into heaven. Nor can you ride the coattails of anybody else on the way into heaven. Okay, so you have a very personal aspect here in verse 9, and then in verse 10, you simply have a statement of fact. And, and that's, that's the way it is structured in the Greek. A statement of fact. The heart man believes, with the mouth he confesses, and this results in salvation. Proverbs says, out of the heart are the issues of life. Other places in scripture, as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. And out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth Speaks. We learned that in Sunday school today. Whatever is in your heart will be reflected in what you say. The heart in Hebrew is not the seat of emotions. Okay, so often we think of, oh, you know, when, when you're, uh, let's think, when you're in love, oh, your heart just, you can feel it, right? Or maybe it's in your stomach, I don't know, okay? But you feel it, your heart's broken when things like that. Well, Hebrew doesn't, doesn't understand the heart as the seat of emotion. It understands the heart as the seat of personhood, as the seat of all your will and your motives and your very being. That is what the heart is for the Hebrew mind. So when it talks about believing in your heart, it is talking about your entire person. It is not talking about an emotional belief. It's not talking about a a momentary thing. It is talking about an entire personal, an entire, all of your personal being believing that Jesus Christ has been risen from the dead. John chapter 8 says that unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. In fact, later in the gospel of John, it says this gospel was written for the very purpose that you might know of Jesus Christ and by knowing him that you might believe and have life eternal in him. Now this life that comes with this grace is not just a quantity of life, as we mentioned before. It is a quality of life. Quantity of life, it is eternal, but it is a different type of life. It is a life of righteousness, of spirituality. Of, of uh, It's a holy kind of life. You are completely transformed in your being, in your doing, and your thinking. This is what grace does in our lives. Now, what is it that you have to believe? Verse 9 is very clear. Believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. Well, gee, Rand, you've spent eight years telling us that there are a lot of things that we have to believe about Jesus Christ. Virgin birth, sinless life, deity, uh, miracles, 
um, part of the Trinity. Don't you have to believe in all of these things as well? I mean, it just says here that he raised him from the dead. Why does he isolate the resurrection? Well, very simply, because the resurrection from the dead verifies all that Jesus was, verifies all that went before. All of those things that I mentioned, if you believe in the resurrection of Christ from the dead, then you must, by necessity, also adhere to all of those other things. You can't be, there's no other way to say this, you can't be a Christian unless you believe in the resurrection. You cannot be a Christian unless you believe that that tomb is empty, that Christ came out bodily in the same form that he went in, he came out. Okay? You believe in that resurrection, then you will be saved. Turn back a couple pages to Romans chapter 1. The resurrection is the verification by God of all the things about Jesus, his son. It is proof of the ministry of Jesus Christ. In Romans chapter 1, the first four verses, it says, Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, who was born of a descendant of David according to the flesh, who was declared the son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead. According to the spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ, our Lord. We can also see this in 1 Peter chapter uh, 1, the same type of thing. God declares him his son through the resurrection. Yes, he said at the moment of Jesus' baptism, you are my son in whom I am well pleased. The final declaration of all that went before, the final declaration or the summation of all who Jesus was, was the resurrection from the dead. Now, the question is, is this what we believe? Do we actually believe these things? Well, is belief enough? Let me throw a monkey wrench into this. You know whose theology is perfect. You know who knows who Jesus Christ is. You know who has seen his work. You know who is convinced that he is the Son of God. You know who is convinced that he has power over everything. You know who is convinced that he rose from the dead... Those are the demons. Demons' theology is perfect. Okay? Demons' theology is perfect. They know exactly who Jesus is. They are monotheists. That means one God. They are Trinitarian. They believe in the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Maybe they can explain it better than we can. Okay? But they believe in it. They understand it. They know the nature of God. They're very orthodox in all that they do. They understand scripture properly. They know who the angels are. They know men are sinful. They know about heaven. They know about hell. They have a supernatural knowledge of the invisible world. They have a supernatural knowledge of the eternal realm. They have a lot of knowledge. They know Jesus Christ is the Son of God in human flesh, and he died on the cross and he rose from the grave. They have no problem with that at all. They know those things. Not only do they know this, but they're afraid of judgment. They live in fear of judgment. They believe and they tremble before the Lord. Remember, Jesus comes along. He's going to cast them out. And they say, no, no, don't put us in the pit. Don't put us in the pit yet. It's not our time. So here you have individuals who have all this knowledge. Their belief is orthodox. They know the judgment is coming. They know that they have been justly condemned to hell. They know their own guilt, but they fail to confess Jesus Christ as Lord. 
They fail to confess Jesus Christ as Lord. See, there are many people who have knowledge, many people who have a lot of knowledge about Scripture and about who Jesus Christ is, but they are not saved. They may even have fear of God's judgment. They certainly know their own guilt, their own shame, their own sin, but yet they're not saved. Many desire salvation. The rich young ruler, remember the rich young ruler? He shows up to Jesus and says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? First problem is, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, follow all the commandments. Oh, I've done that since I was a child. Done exactly as I should have. And then what does Jesus say? Sell everything you have, give it to the poor, and come follow me. Now, is poverty a prerequisite for salvation? No. But lordship of Jesus Christ is part of salvation. And what Jesus was doing is he was addressing the Lord of this young man's life. And that was his stuff. Am I going to be the Lord or is your stuff going to be the Lord? And you know what happened? The rich young ruler went away very sad because he was very wealthy. He said, no, my stuff is more important. It is my Lord. It controls my life. See, for the believer, we must confess Jesus as Lord and give over all control of our lives. He must be Lord and sovereign over all parts of our lives. The heart that truly believes understands the fullness of Christ, understands who Christ is, and willingly submits to his authority. Willingly submits to his authority. The Lord Jesus Christ has come to save us from our sins to break the chains of evil, to subdue the sinful influences that now dominate us and put put within us a new heart and a right spirit. By the imputation of grace, he makes us desire holiness. This is transformational grace. You're never the same. Whatever you were before is gone. Paul, in fact, says, you know, all those things that I did before, before Christ, what do I call them? Dung. It's all done. It means nothing. Why? Because he had been completely transformed by the grace of Jesus Christ. Once that is done, you're no longer bound by the chains of sin. You, you now have the capacity, the ability to resist temptation. It transforms all of you. The deepest part of you is where this grace touches. For those who say, I affirm it is true that Jesus Christ died and rose from the dead for my justification, that he is the Son of God who paid the penalty for my sin on the cross, and that if I receive him, he will give to me righteousness and deliver me from sin and from death and hell. This is believing, this is confessing what it is to be true. Now we all, for those of us who are believers, we know this in our hearts, we all have seen people who we thought were complete wretches, totally lost, but yet the grace of our Heavenly Father comes upon them and changes them forever. Let me tell you about one of these individuals. You probably know him. Let me give you his story. It begins in a cemetery in Olney, England. There on his tombstone, it reads this. John Newton, clerk, once an infidel and libertine, a servant of slavers in Africa, 
was by the rich mercy of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ preserved, restored, pardoned, and appointed to preach the faith he has long labored to destroy. John Newton wrote this before he passed away to specifically be put on his stone. John Newton grew up in a home that had a godly mother, but unfortunately she passed away when he was seven. His father was a slaver. When he remarried at the age of, uh, when John was 11, John went out on one of his father's slave ships and began to serve in that capacity. He described his early years, he said, as one continuous band of rebellion and debauchery. While back in Port in England in 1742, at the age of 17, he met a young woman named Mary Cartlett and fell in love. And Mary began to pray for John and prayed for years for John. At one point, John was actually captured by slavers himself and held as a slave for 15 months until he was able to escape. After several years of working on slave ships for his father, he became, became the captain of his own slaver called the Greyhound. He writes that it was a cruel and a vicious way of life. While returning to England from Africa, we know the story. He ran into a storm. Everybody on the boat thought that they were done. So as the storm rages for days and days at a time, John Newton goes back to his cabin and he pulls out a book that was given to him, a book by, written by Thomas Akempis called An Imitation of Christ. And it was through the storm and through the debauchery and the wretchedness of his life and this book about imitating Christ that the Lord used and came upon him. And it was there in his cabin where he came to Christ. A month later, when they all had survived and he limped into a harbor in Ireland, he got off the ship. He was the first one off the ship. That, uh, for a captain, that's not supposed to happen. The gangplank went down. He ran off the ship, ran to the first church that he found. And in there, he confessed publicly his faith in Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior. Mary's prayer had finally come to fruition. Two years later, they were married. John went back to the slave trade, but as his faith began to grow and mature, his conscience could no longer bear the cruelty and punishment that went on in the slave trade. So he eventually heard the call to ministry, was ordained as an Anglican pastor. Had a great influence on many people, including William Wilberforce, who worked in Parliament tirelessly to end slavery. After many years of ministry, Newton's about age of 82, some people came to him and said, John, don't you think it's time for you to retire? Newton said, what? Shall the old Africa blasphemer stop while he can still speak? My memory is nearly gone. I remember two things. I'm a great sinner. Christ is a great Savior. That's transformational grace. Let's pray. Lord, we are great sinners. And we have no business in your presence. But yet you bestow upon we, who each of us are the chief of sinners, you bestow upon us this grace that comes through Christ. This grace that can change us from whatever we have been. This grace that comes and dwells in our hearts and fills us with a peace and an understanding that the world cannot provide. 
that longing in our hearts, that thing that we have been searching for and trying to fulfill it either in work or in things of the world or whatever it might be, and we just can't seem to find the fulfillment. We just can't seem to find a peace. We can't seem to find a trust and a confidence in the things of this world. That is what your grace brings to us. John Newton is just one of many millions of examples of the grace and what it does in our lives. Come upon us today, Lord, that we would understand this grace. Perhaps, Lord, for those who walked in not knowing it, that you would come upon them. Give them the gift of faith. Open their eyes to their sin, Lord, that they might believe and confess Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. For it is this amazing grace that you bestow upon us in Jesus Christ that we give you praise for. In his name, amen.